Now, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Mitch and Alan. Yeah, Alan Niven yeah. Uh, from uh, Guns N' Roses. He used to manage Guns N' Roses. He co-hosts with me. Alan, uh, say say bonjour to George. Uh, you well, know, me and Slash are just like that, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm delighted to hear it. How are you today, yeah. George? I'm good. I got a uh, I got a great Slash story for you. I was uh, I came back from Europe and I was doing a, some shows with Hot Tuna, mm-hmm. and I ran into Jack okay. Cassidy and Jorma from Jefferson Airplane, you know. And I just right. walked up to him. I said, "Hey, fellas, will you sign my guitar?" And they said, "Sure." And I, I said, and "I didn't mention any names." They said, "Well, where you been, George?" I said, "Well, I was out there doing some festivals in Europe." And both of them said, "Did you see Snatch?" I mean, Slash. I said, yeah, I saw Slash. And they said, Slash is cool, isn't he? I said, yes, as a matter of fact, he is cool. We didn't even bring his name up. They just assumed if you're touring in Europe, you're playing with Slash. So there you have it. <laughs> there you have it. So uh, we'll just remind the folks that uh, George is here to talk about, of course, live in Boston, the complete concert from 1982. Uh, just a phenomenal package, by the way. I mean, what is it here? I'm just looking down. 20, 27 songs. Um, George, talk to me just quickly about the package and that tour in terms of, because that, that's where sort of the career got set up for me. You, you know, that's when we went from being George in the clubs to the MTV to the to the next level to opening for the Stones. Actually, you opened for the Stones before that, I guess. But uh, talk to me about that that package and that tour and that show. Well, I can't really individualize that one show, fellas, because uh, we played at that uh, the Bradford Hotel um, several times. We played there in '81, '82, um, so it's kind of hard to, um, you know, it's kind of foggy. It was a long time ago um, to like, you know, isolate one show from the other. But I will tell you this: that that particular location, of Bradford Hotel, at that time was a pretty rough area in Boston. It was known as the Combat Zone. And uh, it was not exactly the ideal place to be. I mean, if you went down there and you got into trouble and you went to the police and they said, well, you deserve it. You went to the combat zone. You shouldn't have been there. <laughs> but our fans came and, you know, packed the place out. So I was really impressed by that the first time. I said, after a while, I said, you know, I, I like the Bradford. Can, can we play someplace else with the combat zone? Because these people are, are risking a lot coming down here. But the combat zone doesn't exist anymore. They turned it into the Boston Commons. They got a real nice four seasons over there. So uh, um, that I remember. But, you know, in those days, fellas, you couldn't really pick and choose your venues. You had to kind of take what you got. Yeah. Uh, Alan, I'll I'll defer to you because I've had a chance to interview George a bunch of times. I'll I'll let you ask a couple on this one. Well, that brings back a minute. I I was going to say, George, that brings back a memory or two for me because uh, when I first came to America in 77, and first visited Boston in that year. I remember being warned very carefully to stay away from the combat zone, which got my interest up um, and didn't go there. But let, let's talk about that gig. Tell me, I don't have the track list in front of me, but I mean, for example, have you got uh, Highway 49 on there? No, we didn't cut that until we did an album uh, called uh, um Born to be bad, which came out in '88. Right. We didn't. We that was strictly a, a studio thing we threw together because we didn't really we didn't have enough material. As usual, after the first two albums we did, uh, we were always scrapped for one or two more songs. So naturally, some unknown Chuck Berry song would show up, or another 
Hallymore for Elmore James thing. Um, we we generally well, went to in ask, the studio and what's that? I got to ask. Did you ever take take your Did you ever take yourself down Highway Forty Nine to Route Sixty One and have a conversation with somebody there? No, I, I never did that. Um, I, I've been in that area a lot. I may have done it and not even known it. Um, I do know that uh, we were with Eddie Eddie Shaw, a saxophone player with uh, Howling Wolf, and we were in Mississippi and we were in that area. And we really went right. This really happened to us. And they have a club down there. Um, I think it's called Ground Zero or something like that. And it's run by Morgan uh, Morgan Freeman, the Academy Award winning actor. And he had a place down there. And we were going to go in there and shoot some video. And as we were going there, we were in two cars. And we went right through that area. It's supposed to be the crossroads and all that. And right. uh, we're, we're, we were, if you ever drive through Mississippi at nighttime, man, it's really dark there. One of the darkest places I've ever seen. Anyway, we're driving through and there's two cars and something comes skittering across the road about maybe only about four or five inches off the ground, but about five or six feet long and moving real fast and looked real strange. And nobody said anything about it and just went flying past the, past us. And it spooked us so much that we didn't even talk about it till the next day. And finally, somebody got the nerve to say, hey, did you guys see something last night? And we all went, including Eddie Shaw, went, yeah, we did. We saw something. Did you see that, too? And we were going, yeah, we saw that thing scoot across the road. I said, what was it? And one said, was it a dog? And I said, oh. And I said, was it a wolf? And I said, oh, we didn't, couldn't figure what happened. Jeff Simon, our drummer, goes, it was a hellhound. <laughs> You know so what? We left it at that. We left it at that. Yeah. You, you know what? It just might have been. You never know. But, um, you know, again, again, I'm sure you've been asked this, these questions a million times. Um, so forgive me for being indulgent in, in asking for my own curiosity. But I remember when your first record came out. I remember when your first couple of records came out. And there was something about the, the release that was incredibly unusual, even to me as a, a little old tea bag from London. And I was fascinated by the fact that you were on a label called Rounder. And I may be wrong, but my recollection of Rounder back in the day was that it was a folk label. And here was this blistering guitar and this great feeling rock and roll suddenly on Rounder Records. And of course, the question to my mind was, did all the labels, and I love hearing stories about how stupid labels are, did they all pass on you? How did you end up on a folk label? Rounder Records was the only label who said maybe. Maybe. Wow. Maybe. maybe. And here's the other thing. Well, you understand thing. something. Well, let's, 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 give, let's get credit where credit is due here, fellas. Um, you know, the fact was it was a man who saw us play and was connected to Rounder Records. He bought a lot of records from there, and he thought we had a pretty good live act and asked if we were on a label. And I said, no. And he said, but I know a label called Rounder Records, which I'd never heard of. And he said, they might be interested in you. And so I got involved with them. What I didn't know was I thought all record labels were the same. They're not. Um, Rounder Records is a, is a, um, a company that 
they'd be if they were a film company, they would be shooting documentaries. That's what they did. They found you know yeah. unusual talent, mostly old timey music, fiddle music, country, not commercial stuff. And they recorded it. And usually it was a one shot deal. Like they recorded a woman who was a street musician, and all she played was a tambourine sang off the streets of Atlanta. So that's what they did. But th- this this I did not know. So. No one even informed me. Not even routed. They were trying to say, "Hey, look, man, you know, like we, we don't, we don't do do what you do." And I was like, "My plan was to get with Capricorn. That was my plan." I, we did some shows with John Hammond. I looked at Capricorn. They had the Allman Brothers. They had Ellen Bishop. They had John Hammond. I thought that was a perfect fit for us. So I got the tape ready. We had done some demos. I got a, a resume of who we worked with: Muddy Waters, Alan Wolf, people like that. And I was all ready to send it to and go to the South and present myself. Uh, but then the company folded in like the spring of 75. I was ready to make my move. And I said, well, now what am I going to do? Um, now, <laughs> whether there's no other label for me to go to, that would have been the perfect one. Um, so then the rounder thing came up and, you know, I didn't know any different. I said, well, they're saying maybe. And we sent tapes out to other record labels are holy and people like that and they turned us down of course and uh rounder just took pity on us finally he said you gotta take pity on this guy this this guy lives in a in a a delusional world and he keeps going on about you know how great he is how great the band is well we had a big following in philadelphia in the philadelphia area we packed in the clubs down there and people were just crazy over madison blues and bourbon scotch and beer which rounder didn't know about so when they finally got out to see us play live and saw what we did then then they got interested and said okay let's do a record yeah and 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 of course well, your, your last uh, record party of one from 2017 was on rounder so they revived the label i guess no they've been going strong ever since they didn't really revive the label no they've been uh, well well i mean maybe that's your opinion of it but they've been doing business great okay. business with you know allison kraus and robert plant and you know, a couple albums by those people. So they've been going strong and getting stronger every decade since like 1970. And I kept in touch with them over the years. And in the early days when we were with them, uh, the president of the company, Marion Layton at the time, was always interested in saying, when are you going to do an acoustic album? When are you going to do that? And we just never quite got around to it. So as the years went on, I said, well, I guess now's the time to do it. And we had you know, people interested in that, fans. And people would say, hey, I heard a couple of acoustic things on your record. Why don't you do a whole record of that? So time went by when we got together and said, well, it's time now. It's, that's one thing I haven't done yet. So, uh, boy, I'll tell you, that was hard work, too. <laughs> Whatever the fame John Hammond and Taj Mahal is not enough. <laughs> I, I had a follow-up on that, on that uh, initial rounder release because... Obviously, the uh, the other thing that crossed my mind, I was working for a record, the British record company at the time, was I didn't didn't suppose that Rounder had the kind of infrastructure that, say, a Capital or a Warner's or or the CBS had, and wouldn't have had all the regional promotional radio guys, and yet suddenly this this record of yours on Rounder, to my recollection took off. Am I right in my recollection? And I mean, that well, obviously speaks to uh, how good the record was, but how did, how did Rounder get you out there? Did you break out regionally? Was it out of Philadelphia? 
No, it wasn't. It was, uh, it was, um, it was just a word of mouth thing. And Rounder Records was very conservative in their, in their publicity and their promotions. Um, because like I said, they were a documentary label and they would do something, a yeah. documentary thing. And, and, and they had a mailing list and all that. And they had their business all straightened out. And along comes our record. Well, we had no push. We had no manager. We had no tour manager. We didn't even have an accountant. Um, you know, we, we, we didn't have anything. We had one microphone. Um, you know, we drove ourselves by the Princeton amp, um, you know, and, uh, what happened was somebody got a hold of the album, uh, at a party in California and put it on and they kept playing and playing and playing. And somebody from radio, um, at the, uh, the, 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 uh, FM radio up in, uh, they had a thing called, um, they had K fat and they had K met and, uh, these labels in Northern California and they, they put it on radio and, it took off that way, which, and then as someone picked it up and put it on AM radio in Denver, um, which really it kind of freaked me out. Cause I said, Hey man, we're not supposed to be on the radio, man. This is an insult. We're not supposed to be on the radio. No, I'll go tell them I'm going on the radio, baby. That's, 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 that's selling out. That's copping out. <laughs> so, when it, when it got rolling, it really pleased us and rounder. I said, see, for years, I've been reading things in, in, in magazines about how great this record is and a promotional for this new band and this new act. So I go listen to it. I said, this record isn't any good. Why are they doing all this promotional push for something that isn't any good? Why don't they do no promotion at all? Just play the record and let the people decide if they like the record or not. And that's what happened with us. And by the way, Alan, what's what's important or what's great about this is that Jeff Simon, the drummer, and Billy, and I, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but Billy Blau, I guess, is how you pronounce the uh, the bass guitar's name. It's, it's a British. It's a, in, in England, it's Bluff. Bluff. <laughs> in yeah. America, it's Blau. But yeah, but but these guys have been with you since that first record. Talk to me about that, because you know the name on the marquee says George Thorogood. You could easily just. Every five years, you know, like Alice Cooper, get get a whole bunch of new guys, but you've stuck with them. Talk to me about that importance of, of, of sticking with the guys and having a loyalty, but also having a band that is George Thorogood and not just a guy. Well, you know, it, it, it um, well, let me, let me, let me set you straight, fellas. I mean, after the first album, a couple albums, yeah, I did get in touch with Stanley Clark and Paul McCartney and uh, Charlie Watts and uh, Jeff Beck, but they weren't interested. <laughs> you know? And they're a little out of my price range, you know? So I said, okay. And another thing about Blau and Jeff and, and myself, I have a very unorthodox style of playing the guitar. Um, and it's, I, I play with a lot of people and there were just certain uh, drummers who couldn't find the groove behind me. Uh, John Hammond has it on an orthodox style. And when he worked with Charles Otis, it was absolute magic. So I said, but playing with these guys, it's got, um, it, 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 we have our own style. We have that. I said, yeah, we can go get these, these flashy cats and hire them and all that. But it won't be quite the same. It's like when I heard Fogarty's solo record, when he did center field, everybody in the world said, except for John said, no credence. That's it. That's the sound. That's the John Fogarty sound. Those are terrific records. And I told somebody once, I said, you know, well, our band is not, we're not the most polished guys. We just, this is the way we play. And someone said, well, that's the charm of it. And I, I use that as a reference because I was that song, Who'll Stop the Rain? And the ending, the, the drums in the end, I talked to John. I said, how can you be embarrassed by these records that you made with these fellas? I mean, <laughs> the Beatles came to see you play, brother. 
<laughs> Why would you tamper with something that great? Um, so I said, well, you know, and besides, I could afford Billion Jeff. I, uh, you know, I, I couldn't have, couldn't afford to get, you know, I couldn't afford to hire George Benson. So, hey, there you go. There you go. Uh, hopefully they're not working for minimum wage at this point. Um, l- let me quick, quickly talk about the Epiphone White Fang that, that is your signature guitar. Uh, talk to me about that one and, and what attracted you to that company and what is it about your guitar and the sound and, and how involved are you in the production of it? Do you just say, here, guys, just throw my name on it and we'll sell a few and off I go? Or do you get in there and say, let me check the specs. Let me do this. Let me get my guy. Uh, talk to me about the White Fang. Uh, well, it's not as, it's, it's not as, uh, the whole distorter's organization isn't quite as uh, slap happy as people may think. Um, uh, there is um, organiza- organizations from day one that um, an awful lot of thought went into our stuff, uh, records, our, our equipment, all those kind of things. Uh, whereas uh, the people get the misconception, they'll say, oh, George and the guys, man, they just get drunk and jam. Uh, that's not the truth. That's if you did that, you're not going to last. Um, we we were very meticulous about the instruments we used. I got the 125 because it was inexpensive, and that's the only electric guitar I could afford. And we had a gig coming up, and I had never played electric guitar in a band before. I played acoustic, and the band is a miracle because it just fit my style. It's an arch top. It's set up like an acoustic guitar. I thumb pick, I finger pick, I don't flat pick. Um, and it had a, a unique sound with the P90s. Um, so I wanted a sound that when people heard it, they'd know it was me, uh, for better or for worse. Like you turn on the radio, you hear Van Morrison's voice, you know it's him. Yeah, so I wonder who that is. So even if people don't like it, at least they know it's me. So no, that's the good. I don't want to hear that. So I said, well, I wanted a signature sound, but the guitars wore out, fellas. I mean, they stopped making them in 1970, and I wore them out. We spent so much money repairing these guitars. We spent thousands of dollars repairing guitars that were only about two, three hundred dollars to begin with. Um, so I said, "Well, I guess I'll just have to stop playing because I I played every guitar I can. I can't play them. I tried Fender Stratocasters. I, I want to be Jeff Beck, you know. I want to play a Les Paul, you know, like like." Uh, uh, like all, all the cats do, you know, Peter Towns and all that, but I just can't get the hang of it. And this is the only instrument I can play. So they Epiphone came, made a deal and said, we will design a guitar like the 125. And our guitar tech who's a genius from Oklahoma. He did all the specs on it, him and our sound man, Jeff. Tech. Yeah. Rev. And he worked. And Rev worked. Jones. What's that? Rev Jones. Reverend Jones. Yeah. Who, who, of course, ho- hold on. We got to mention this. He played with Michael Schenker for a few years. So he's not just some schmo off the back of the bus here. He's, he's Rev Jones who played with Michael Schenker and tours with, with George. So mad props no, for him. Definitely big league. Yes. hundred percent. Uh, real sharp. He, he, he knows it from A to, A to Z and back again. And they got the guitars and he worked with them and worked with them. And, you know, and finally a couple of times they slipped the guitar at me and I just show in Portland and I came back and I said, yeah, I want the other guitars, but I don't know if I can play these guitars. And he said, you already have. You just didn't know it. We gave them to you without you knowing it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I, I defeated my own purpose. So the, uh, and I noticed it. So I went back to the 125s and the reception from the audience was okay. And then I put the Epiphone back on and it just, just, it's, I can't put the thing down. I went, I was laying around last night watching the news and went back room, picked up my Epiphone. I, I can't put the thing down once I start playing it. My hands are killing me. I said, 
man, this is, this instrument's a dream. So uh, it was, uh, and that was Epiphone's idea to get a signature song and, you know, give me a, you know, a make a, a signature guitar, White Fang. I'm a big fan of Soupy Sale. Uh, he's my favorite comedian. And uh, I, I, one's white and one's black. And the, the guitar, the black one is um, Black Tooth. And the white one is White Fang after the two dogs and uh, Soupy Sale. Have you ever seen Soupy Sale's show? You'll know what I'm course, talking about. Of course, of course. Um, and uh, Alan, I'll let I you gotta, I, go, go for it. I was, I was just going to quickly say that, um, you know, obviously Epiphone, for those who know their guitars, um, are probably considered, you know, the, the, cheap, the cheap end of, the, of the, the Gibson range. I got to tell you, Epiphone, are, I think, value for money, one of the best guitars out there. I mean, they do an Ed Cassidy bass that I think is phenomenal. Um, and, you know, and if you're into, into playing a 12 bar approach, they have some amazing guitars that I think for their value are just superlative. I really do. Well, when I, uh, I, I was, you know, I've always been a Gibson man. And when they interested, what about the Epiphone? And I picked up the Epiphone. I started fooling around with it. Then I went back and did some research and I remember in the back of my mind, I went and looked at some pictures, early pictures of the Beatles and John Lennon was playing an Epiphone and some early pictures yep. of the Rolling Stones and Keith Richards was playing an Epiphone. So I said, okay, <laughs> sign me yeah, up. Good enough for them. Good enough for them. Exactly. Good enough for me. If it works Absolutely. for them, it works for Absolutely. me. And uh, I, I know we have to wrap it. up soon. So I just want to ask you this. Uh, the first show that got canceled for COVID was you coming to Montreal last year. For me, my for my first cancel show of all the ones, and I was like, "Damn it, why, 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 George?" But you are coming back in May. There, the tour does start on May fourth in Grand Prairie, Alberta. How confident are you that these dates are going to happen? And if they do, or if they don't happen, do you push them some more, or at some point you just say, "Ugh," and say no mass and figure it out and come back? And how confident are you that you will be touring next year? Well, actually, we don't. Everything is still on the books, fellas. Um, we were supposed to start this year um, in, in Vancouver, um, and, and they just and then once by one by one, tour by tour, got postponed, not canceled, and rescheduled, uh, as we did in Europe and other places. So the next date is supposed to be at the end of April in uh, in Vancouver, um, and as as of now, it's still on the table. I am, uh, you know, I'm an optimistic guy, but I'm also a realist. I would, Canada is like our second home there. I mean, they roll out the red carpet there. You, you say Canada, man, but the stores light up like a Christmas tree. Um, we've been going there since 78 and it just gets better every time we go. And okay. one of the first places so, where you were sold out, you've told me the story about how Montreal clubs had lines around the building when you were nobody in a sense, right? I mean, we, we love you. Well, it was it was amazing because we we did the show. I don't even speak French, let alone French Canadian. I don't, uh, you know. I, I we 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 went up there and we played the first set in the club called the Casino. It was called the Casino, and we played. And we're going to do two shows, turn the house, and we did the first show. And there's about half a dozen, ten people who wouldn't leave the club. And the club owner went down there speaking French Canadian, started shouting, and he said. 
well, you'll have to leave. And they said, the second show was sold out. You, you can't stay. And they said, no, we're staying. We're staying. We're staying. And started throwing money on the table. So finally, Pumbler went upstairs and got me and took me downstairs. And I said, are you kidding me? I've been waiting my whole life to, 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 to be successful in this business. And you want me to go to people and turn them away from our show? No way. <laughs> no way. We'll find a way to <laughs> let them stay. They would not leave. So they tucked them in the back, back by the toilet. And they, these people, they, they were going to call the cops on these people. And I said, holy smokes, man, we got a, we got a, we got a home here. I'll tell you. So getting back to that, whether we go or not, it, it's all up, up to the pandemic. Of course, that's, that rules. That's number one, health, health first, safety first. They're saying that the world's going to open up probably late summer in the fall next year. I tend to believe the experts. I watch the news and check it out and see what's happening. Uh, it would be wonderful. If we did go sooner than that. Don't get me wrong. Um, I'm, Kind of holding my breath, uh, fellas, on that. So, well, the the uh, head of what? How about this? Yeah. How's this sound? How's this sound? How's this sound? If they, if they have to cancel the tour and schedule it another time, how about if I just go to Canada anyway? Yeah, yeah just to uh, come over to my band. place and you come and do the acoustic set in the backyard. Uh, yeah, Al? yeah, yeah. I'll, 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 I'll get a, I'll get a, I'll get a, I'll get the test. I'll get the, you know, the whole test and the whole thing. Go into quarantine and say, well, can't I just come here anyway? <laughs> you know, we, we can't. But if I do that, I know what Billy and Jeff are going to say. Say, well, why can't we come? And I'll say, well, okay. And then before you know it, or Saxburg and Guitar Plan, <laughs> we are taking Billy and Jeff. Why can't we come? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. we're right back to square one. You'll, you'll get them all. Well, and we as long as we might as well bring, we might as well bring well, the crew into a show. And as long as they have the Mets on TV, you're going to be good to go. Alan, I will, uh, I will let you close. Uh, après vous. Well, I was going to say, Mitch, if. George comes up and does the, you the honor of playing in your backyard. Just be prepared that people ain't going to leave and they're going to want him to play an extra set. George, I've got to say, it's been a real pleasure talking with you. Um, I'm sure you hear it on a daily basis, but I am one of the millions of people who have thoroughly enjoyed your playing and your energy and your vibe and your frequency for decades. And thank you. Well, thank you. You know, I met the, the great character actress, um, uh, uh, Lanny Kazan, and I told her how much I loved her work and how much she was great in my favorite year. And I love your work. And I said, I, I fell in love with you in that movie. And then I stopped and I said, uh, Lanny Kazan, I, I hope I hope I'm not boring you. And she said, bore me, bore me. <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 you want to talk nice like that to me? I'm all ears, partner. <laughs> uh, as always, an absolute pleasure, and uh, I will uh, I will wish your New York Mets well next year. Let's hope they re win a World Series for you and at least give you that joy. So there you go. Thank you, and uh, <laughs> hope hope to see you across the border. Absolutely, and uh, Alan's down in Arizona, so if you ever get out to Arizona, you'll you'll have a fan in the stands. And uh, there you go. Always a pleasure. Merci beaucoup. Well. Health and safety first, fellas. Absolutely. Thank you, Health Alan. Health and safety first. You're welcome. You got and, it. Bye-bye. Uh, but cheers.